Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining podcast. And today's guest is Alistair Ross, who's the president and CEO at Rockcliffe Metals Corporation. Um, They are a well-funded Canadian major explorer um, in the Flynn Flow Snow Lake Green Stone Belt, um, where there's there in that area the host mines and deposits that contain a lot of copper, zinc, gold, and silver. Um, Alistair's life mission is to bring nobility to the mining industry. So I'm really keen to know more more about that and his sort of um, focus around his intentions around obviously bettering the mining the mining uh, industry so first of all i'd like to uh, welcome alistair ross how you doing alistair i'm doing real well thanks rob good to be with you yeah and good good to uh, appreciate the time for you to uh, come on this podcast obviously i'm in the uk and you're uh, you're in canada so um for people that don't know you uh can you just give the audience a little bit about uh background about yourself and, and your journey and your career um from i suppose back in the day when you um were studying and graduated to where you are now so people have got a, a bit of a background as to uh, a little bit about yourself and then i've got a number of questions to ask you obviously around around your company and also um around your your life mission Sure, Rob. Um, I was born and brought up in Zimbabwe. Um, went to college in the UK. I was at the Royal School of Mines at Imperial College there, part of London University. I did a metallurgical engineering degree there. And after a while uh, of working, I went back and did a, a master's of science in mineral process design. Um, my my actual career started with Rio Tinto in Zimbabwe. Um, they they had a number of gold mines, uh, a nickel copper mine, along with a, a base metal smelter and, and refinery. And I sort of grew up in both worlds of base metals and uh, gold with Rio Tinto there. Um, and then when it came time for me to decide to leave Zimbabwe, I had my first child. We, we joined uh, BCL in Botswana. And they were largely an Anglo-American um, Road Selection Trust, and at the time, Amex owned sort of consortium, and it was a nickel copper place there in the middle of the desert there in Botswana. Uh, and from there, I joined Magma Copper in the U.S. Copper Company, obviously. Um, and then from there, I joined Phelps Dodge in New Mexico. And there, uh, oh, let's see, that's sort of kind of midway through the career. There, I ended up in Canada with Inco in the Sudbury Basin, you know, those prolific mines that have been going 100 years, and who knows, they've probably got 100 years ahead of them. That's just an incredible deposit there in Sudbury. Um, uh, from there, I went to Lundman in South Africa as the president, so that was my sort of career was up through the corporate ladder, as it were, with all those moves. Uh, president of Lundman, uh, where we had sort of 20, 25,000 employees, uh, eight mines, uh, five concentrators, a base metal smelter, and a 
PGM refinery where we took platinum, palladium, and all those things into finished product. Uh, there I got actually sick. My career was interrupted. I ended up with cancer, viral encephalitis. Uh, it took me about three years to recover. And after the recovery, I sort of started up my consultancy again, but I found that I really wanted to get back into the business, helped a couple of local uh, companies, and then ended up with another short spell with Valet in Sudbury uh, before this latest go with Rockcliffe. So I've had a couple of retirements, and each time the calling has been, hey, you've got something to do for the mining industry. And the reason I'm back at Rockcliffe in the mining industry now is really about my lifelong calling, which is, as you mentioned earlier, about the possibility of creating uh, the nobility of the mining industry. So. Yeah, certainly. Before we go on to that, can you just, um, again, give your audience an overview of uh, Rockcliffe Metals Corporation? Mm -hmm. um, what you're about and what you're obviously looking to do, looking to achieve. Yeah, I was approached by Rockcliffe um, about a year ago in, in May of last year with the um, you know, sort of talk about did I want to come and be the CEO of the company. They, Rockcliffe had been an explorer for many years uh, and run by a gentleman by the name Ken Lapierre. He, how he had kept it alive all those years, I don't know, but he <laughs> did an amazing job and he slowly we grew this pretty incredible land package uh, just south of Snow Lake and around Snow Lake in northern Manitoba um, in the Flin Flon Greenstone Belt. Um, and what it's picked up mostly were narrow veins, steeply dipping uh, copper ore bodies. Now, they've got some zinc and some gold and silver with them, but they're copper predominant for their, their value. And at some point, he'd been flipping projects in and out, and there was a company that had acquired from him a couple of projects that had also gone ahead and got a, a lease on a base metal mill in the area. And that company was called Norvista. And Norvista now had two of uh, Ken Lapierre's properties out of Rockcliffe, plus the uh, lease on the mill. And they were looking at how, could, how do we get these mines into production, put them in a the mill, and obviously needed money. And at that point, a company out of the UK called Greenstone Resources, a private equity firm, yeah. uh, they sort of met up, talked, and decided that they'd do a three-way package between Greenstone money, Norvista's two properties plus the lease in the mill, and then what Rockcliffe brought to the table is potential exploration down the road. So a new Rockcliffe, if you like, got started uh, in May of last year. That's when I came in and I accepted the role as uh, CEO, and we've built a small company of five people since then. And And our real target is... How do, you, how do you take these particular deposits that Ken's been finding, which are narrowly steeply dipping, they're pretty rich for copper deposits. You know, they're probably running actual copper percentages, 3%. Um, and then if you add the value of the gold and silver and zinc with them, maybe you get over, you know, 4 to 5% in some of them as a copper equivalent. So it sounds pretty good, but they're only about a meter and a half or so thick. And they plunge very deeply. And so... You know, there's not a lot of value per vertical meter. And that's actually one of the reasons I joined us. It's an interesting conundrum in my past in the gold industry. You found some fairly rich gold veins, which were thin and plunged pretty deeply, and you never quite made the economics work on them. And so I thought, no, we've got some pretty good money behind us now. Um, I, I know I can network with the right people. We're going to change the way we look at uh, a narrow vein, steeply dipping ore body for a completely different mining method and show the world how we can actually extract these valuable resources. And there's a lot of that lying around that we already know of today. 
uh, if you can get the mining costs to the right place, we can actually get uh, some pretty valuable resource available for society. So that, that call to the nobility of the mining piece for me and uh, an interesting puzzle to solve. And so at some point I'll sh- later on the podcast, I'll show you how far we've got with solving yeah. that. Yes, that's what that's what got me back in the saddle, as it were. Yeah, I was just going to say it's interesting. You said that you um, retired twice, mm-hmm. and and obviously came back into the industry. What makes you? What made you come? What made you decide to, I suppose, retire, and then come back? And what was the reason for you to then come back into the industry? What what is what's the main reason that's putting you back into the industry? Yeah, you know, certainly. When I took the three years off, I, I don't know that it was a choice. I think a decision was made for me by, by external circumstances. Okay. I was very ill, very, very ill, and yeah. I need a lot of time to recover. And I was fortunate in that I had a financial position where it wasn't, wasn't a burden financially uh, to us. We were able, my family and I were able to survive without working. And I already had this desire to create the nobility of mining, but I think that reflection after that first retirement was, boy, I was 50 years old and I was okay financially. The mining industry has really done well by me. And then I looked out across the world and I don't know that the mining industry has necessarily done the greatest job for society. Now, clearly, it's provided a lot of really good stuff. You know, just us talking over the computers today is all supplied by mining. You know, there's, it's yeah. amazing what technology is used because mining was able to get the raw resource there. Um, but I don't know that we've always done the best job in getting it to society. And, and I felt, I felt there's a better way to do it. And, and over many years, uh, I took a, a broader, um, and bigger stand around what's the true possibility of mining. And, um, so this part to be a CEO where I could create the company that would be designed from the bottom up with the values of actually being here for society. And, knowing that we're a business so we have to be financially sound we have to give returns back to shareholders that are appropriate otherwise we wouldn't get the money attracted to us those are all got it got it got it it was the and part that became really interesting to me and and how did we ensure aboriginal communities actually welcomed us in their backyard like the what we would look like for aboriginals uh, around the world to be able to call the mining industry and say hey, we've got this pretty rock in our backyard. We really like you as an industry. Why don't you come into my backyard, look at my mineral, and if it's available in a form that can get and help society, we know when you're done, you're going to give us our land back better than it was before we gave it to you. So that starts to describe you know, what does noble look like is, well, society craves us as, as partners as opposed to, yeah, I'll, buy, I'll buy that iPhone, but please don't mind the mineral in my backyard, mine it somewhere else. Yeah, look yeah. that on its head, right? Um, yeah. Where, yeah. So what? So what does the nobility of mining look like if you were sort of able to achieve it? It, it from obviously you, this is a sort of life mission. If if everything could go in the the right direction as you want it to, what would it look like? Yeah. So it's it's a very broad question, and I I gave you a small piece of the answer about immediate interaction with the local communities in which we actually go find the minerals uh, for society. But it's way broader than that. Um, You know, a part of my uh, illness was viral encephalitis. Now, an interesting side effect for that 
of that for me was I ended up with um, depression, anxiety, and panic attacks once the virus had disappeared. And it took about six months for the brain to begin a recovery. And but all the symptoms and as part of the recovery were those, and they're classic uh, precursors to way more serious uh, mental illnesses for people. And so as I was struggling through how to deal with them, and my doctor had warned me if I didn't work on the brain with a really good psychologist, um, it was likely the only way I could be some form of uh, member of society. And he wasn't even sure I would be a useful member of society, just back in, not ostracized or not committed to an asylum somewhere, was, and without medication, was working on the brain. Yeah. He said, we can, can medicate just- you. Can I just interrupt you there? Yeah, yeah. Was your was your illness a direct result through mining whatsoever? Or was it something external? And the reason why I asked that question <laughs> is I did interview um someone in an earlier podcast. Uh can't remember what number off the top of my head, but he he done an episode around mental uh around mental Ill- illness and actually he he got so stressed at work and his job. Um, that he actually became ill through stress working. He, work, he was working in Australia in the, in the Pilbara, uh, I think for one of the big, big mining companies. And as a direct result of working in stressful conditions, not having any time off, just work, 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 sleep, work, work, sleep, um, resulted in a, in a breakdown. Um, so I just, uh, and obviously as you were talking about that, um, that, that came into my head and I just wanted sure. to, if uh, mining played a part of that. Yeah, Rob, so I, I actually, I don't know the answer to that. And I know the neurologist that was treating me in Joburg at the time knows the answer. You know, the, the fundamental cause was they, they found the antiviral bodies uh, in my spinal fluid, which is connected to the brain. My brain was all swollen because the brain was infected. So they know there was a virus infection in there. When, later, as part of the recovery, when I was able to actually start talking meaningfully to people, um, I did actually ask, you know, so why, why would I get that virus? And he says, there's about 150 known viruses that you'll carry around with you. You might feel not well for a day or two, and then you're well again. You don't even notice it. Some of them, like the cold, you're longer than that. He says, but of all the viruses, we know about 150 that nip out of the bloodstream and somehow cross over into the spinal column, get into the brain, and you can get your meningitis as well as your encephalitis. And he, he says, we don't fully understand how he says Mm. however we do know that for people who have highly stressful jobs that your immune system can wear down and certainly if your immune system is not at its top um, performance the ability for those viruses to cross will be higher so is it possible that the job i was in at the time I didn't manage the stress appropriately that would allow for it. I'm seriously carrying that as a possibility. I have no idea. I did have an extraordinary period of travel right up to my first attack, which you know presented itself as a collapse, uh, literally mid-stride. I just fell to the floor. And I didn't black out necessarily. The body just stopped working. And I'm lying there unable to move. And it was the brain just shutting everything down apparently. Um, that first symptom appeared uh, after a very incredible period of about 20, 21 days where I traveled from 
South Africa to Australia, back to South Africa, to China, then around the world to get to London, then back to Joburg, and then back to Australia. And that all happened in about three weeks or so. And then I got this thing. So were they linked? Don't know, Rob. Um, but you know, if people are listening in or interested, um, I think it's a very important thing to do to manage stress in your workplace. Because I got cancer in that time period too, about five months after the first uh, encephalitis thing. I ended up with cancer as well. So, you know, cancers certainly don't mind getting hold of you when your immune systems blow. So, you know, it's 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 I I don't know the answer, but I'm very aware that it might be stress related. Yeah. yeah, and I suppose at the time of this recording, obviously we're amongst this coronavirus uh, epidemic, and again, any viruses attack the immune systems. So, uh, I mean, for me personally, I've been I try to be as healthy as I can, but I'm continuously improve my immune system. I'm taking a lot more vitamins that I didn't do before, exercise a little bit more. Um, and I think anyone listening to this is because of this whole epidemic, I think we just need to look at ourselves a little bit more. Obviously, mining is a stressful industry. And I think people should realize after this epidemic that they're just to look at their immune systems and look at ways that they can obviously improve their immune systems. And if they did, for whatever reason, if this virus did come back, then they've got every chance to beat it if they improve their immune system. And exactly from obviously from what you're saying, your, um, your illness was attacking your immune system. So if one thing we can learn from this is to improve our immune systems in whatever way, I'm not a doctor. I, I think I Googled something. They told me to take certain <laughs> vitamins, C, D, B6, I think it was. Um, so I've just started taking them regularly now. Um, so and doing a little bit more exercise and eating healthy. So, yeah. Um, and, and I think when you add to that one, Rob, the, the impact of stress, that could be a precursor to all of these uh, issues. Yeah. What it means is, you know, back to, to the question you had around, so what does the nobility of mining start to look like is, I think we can create workplaces by design that I don't know if we can necessarily improve people's mental wellness because there's so many other outside factors. But if we can have the contribution from the workplace absolutely not detract from the ability for someone to be mentally well. So don't have stressful workplaces by design. Right at the very beginning, design the corporation that removes some of the stresses um, that you know I might have experienced in some of my you know, travels through different mining companies around the world. Um, so you know that's a big piece of what we're doing. You know, Nobility says actually we're here for the mental wellness of our employees, and we're looking at how that stretches into our vendor chain as well. So. We're doing a lot of design work with vendors and, and a piece of mental wellness comes up in our conversations. You know, are we okay? Are we overworking people? It, is this deadline overly stressful? I still want the deadline, but could we move some qualities if I'm starting to sense people working at midnight and all that sort of stuff? You know, so we, we're, we're hoping to demonstrate that we, we're here for the support of mental wellness and we think that's a great nobility uh, indicator. And then, then some other nobility indicators, you know, would be, I think it's fair to say that the mining capital and mining uh, industry is got a bit of a, a name around destruction of capital rather than creation of capital. 
Uh, there's been a lot of projects that end up just being written off. Um, and I, I, I think it's a tr tremendous waste of the Earth's resources. And um, so what we're about is in a full front, you know, every indicator you can imagine that describes the health uh, of a company, uh, we're saying for a noble one, what would it look like that says, boy, I'd love to give Rockcliffe more capital. And then, oh, if Rockcliffe's leading the way, the mining industry deserves the capital. And, and, you know, and so I could go on, but it, you know, it might be a bit much just for this little talk around yeah. that but no, nobility. But you start to get a flavor of what nobility looks like is that every, every part of the supply chain that we use and that we end up in uh, will actually welcome us as a, as a cog in the wheel. They say, we want people like that because they, they worry about people, they worry about environment. And so we stand for growth of Aboriginal communities. You know, how do we actually, you know, a lot of our mine lives, Rob, will probably be four to five years. We're very short, small deposits. And therefore, and they're widely scattered. So in fact, we interact with a number of First Nations, or we will be, when we're successful, interacting with a number of First Nations. We're already interacting with two separate First Nations entities in Manitoba. And we know where all our other properties are, that if we get lucky and find stuff underground, there's probably three to four more, and yet we'll only be with them four to five years. Yep. So our mission is, but how do they remember us 30 years from now? What did we cause for them because of our five-year stint in their traditional territories that says 30 years later, say, hey, Rockcliffe allowed us to get here. Yeah. Yeah. And so those are the things we're talking with First Nations about right now as a, as a design piece uh, early on. So many, many factors, but I hope you start to get a flavor of, you know, nobility, yeah. one little word, but whoo. Yeah. <laughs> a very, very big construct. Yeah, certainly. And, I saw, and you obviously mentioned like the workplace is changing. Well, what a great time to actually look at something like this during, during these during these times when obviously I think the work environment is is changing and will change for, for forever. Which brings me on to my next question um, around obviously how might the noble, um, noble mining industry adapt to a changing uh, sort of changing uh, technology driven world? Um, obviously um, AI, um, uh, innovation, um, all these technology driven everything wants to be automated what um how is this gonna affect obviously what in terms of what you're thinking around um us bringing nobility to the mining industry yeah so you know a, a lot of companies in the past and i'll stick my hand up as a young metallurgical engineer who was on the path very well for this uh love technology for technology's sake it sounded pretty sexy um and then I think companies got caught a little bit by that and said, certainly the mining industry, in my opinion, it got a little gun shy. Um, is that, no, we've, we've wasted a little bit too much money over here. I remember one company I, had, I was a member of, their motto was, we'll be first to be second. So someone else has to figure all that stuff out. It yeah. wasn't a bad strategy, but it just said we weren't going to do the innovation. Um, and I think you know, as a result of all that, if you look at the mining industry, my ca characterization of it would be they're not known for great innovation anymore. Certainly not in the underground. I think 
some of the open pits really did make some enormous advances. And, you know, I think the Rio Tintas and BHPs did a whole bunch of stuff out in the Pilbara as an example. Um, but in the underground section, I think we lagged very, very significantly. And, and we had good excuses for that. It's hard to communicate in underground tunnels where they don't look at each other. And so how do you actually get a signal there and all that sort of stuff? But it's amazing what technology has done to overcome that. So if you, if you look at the, the noble mining industry and apply, particularly say to Rockcliffe, because um, that's what we're looking at is, you know, if, if let's say our average mine life is five years, it means we can't build houses there. So we'll never build a town around our mining company, which is, yeah. when you look what what's happened across most uh, company, uh, countries as they grew is that little towns would grow up around obvious places. This is a great farming area, so you get a little farming town. Or it is a mining region, you get a mining town. Um, well, if, you, if you've only got a five-year life, we'll be very temporary, very in and out. Huge advantage. We anticipate complete environmental cleanup from our properties with the designs that we've got here now in less than a year. And the only thing left then is for regrowth. And regrowth will occur at whatever rate nature decides, it, depending on the regions we're in. But, uh, but certainly in less than a year, there won't even be a rock left on the ground. It'll just be as you originally saw it, barring vegetation. So tremendous advantage, but um, for innovation purposes, it's, it's fascinating because it says, well, what are you going to do that actually looks after one, the, the people there? Because if I'm, if I'm not building a mining camp or a town, rather, um, how do I look after people that are there? And so this is where I think technology starts to play a real uh, positive is that, uh, well, how many people do I actually need there? Because the fewer people that I need there, the less that get exposed to that. And so technology can start to play, I think, some pretty major roles is, well, let's not throw 100 people into a pretty small mining camp if we only need 20. Or, you know, and I'm making up numbers now because we've got a lot of work to do. But I, I certainly see you know, factors of two and higher less people in a in a mind today than if we did not use automation and tele-remote as an example. Yep. So our fundamental design actually shows an operation center in Sudbury, which is surrounded by all these wonderful service and support communities. It's a big mining town, 150,000 people, mining engineers love to live here, geology, like this is a great place to live for miners. And we'll be doing most of the work, the design, planning, scheduling, and some of the execution of our underground work from Sudbury. Yeah. So we think that's a big, you know, and we'll drive that. And so we'll never really have a full operation at the mine. It'll be mostly maintenance people with only the last piece of the operations that cannot be automated or tele-remoted. Yeah. And obviously this uh, coronavirus has proved such things like that where, I mean, obviously I recruit in the um, expatriate market and a lot of the expats that have been working, say, in Africa have gone back to their home countries, wherever that should be, across, around the world. So a lot of these operations are working on, uh, not skeleton staff, but a lot less expats, if there is any expats on the site. I imagine there, there might be a handful. 
Um, so if a site has got anywhere between 50 and 100 expats, they might only have 10 or 20 actually on site, yet the rest, rest are working around the world remotely at home. So when things start to go back to normal, um, I wonder if all of those expats will have jobs to go back to because yeah. if things are working pretty well without them, then management may decide, look, it's, an eth- it's great to have, have them, but we can save a lot of money here and around what you're saying, having less people on site. Yeah, and, and you imagine, you know, the, the, for us it's a double whammy to actually have an employee at a remote site in northern Manitoba it's incredibly expensive. You know, just getting food up to, to people there, it, it, it's, you would be embarrassed by the cost of the food for a camp when you compare it to if they were living in their own home. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a massive markup factor just to get fresh food up there. So everybody that doesn't appear in the camp is a huge cost saving. But if you put your coronavirus view on, and I really like the way you're asking some of these questions, clearly now, a lot of our workforce was mobile. So our potential workforce would have been mostly Canadian, but they would have flown from the East and the West Coast. The whole, yeah. the whole of Canada is really our backyard for, for mobile uh, mining workforces. And when you think under coronavirus um, concepts that any single one of them, because of all their travel to get to our mine, was a huge vector potential for carrying that virus. So by cutting it back to a, a very small number that end up having to travel, we're actually now to have fairly meaningful accommodations that should something break out, we can quarantine every single person in their own room. You know, and I, I'm just thinking of these mining camps that you have today. Is that it's all, like if there were a virus breakout, it's really tough to quarantine people. Whereas, yeah. you know, right from design now, we can say, oh, if there was a viral breakout of some sort, he has the mode that the camp goes into and we don't have to worry about anything because we just don't need all that space. There's very few people that are all, there's not travel, you know, so the chance goes down, but also the ability to manage it is improved. Yeah. Um, is it possible that mining companies can assist with sort of mental awareness of employees given the rough sort of tough work image of a, of a miner today? <laughs> well, so I, I think if you'd asked me that question 20 years ago, I would have said there's no such thing as an issue called mental <laughs> illness. What do you mean? You know? yeah. um, so I, I put, you know, had my personal um, growth in that area, shall we say. I, I would say there's a growing chance. I, I'm, I'm reminded somewhat when AIDS first arrived, if, if you'd heard, and, and I don't know where you were when that was a growing conversation, but if you'd heard that person had AIDS, they were almost ostracized. They were, they were yeah. pushed away. They were like this bad feeling in a, in a conversation, and there was something wrong beyond was, just the illness. I was still at school then. <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. Senior but, school. Right. But, but you can imagine the world wasn't ready for AIDS and certainly didn't know how to treat people both for the illness itself but as a member of society. And there were tremendous ostracizings going on for people who ended up with that uh, virus. But, you know, if I look back over the last five to 10 years, the, the mental wellness conversation has certainly started 
But even today, in a workforce, if someone shows up with a mental illness, there's this ostracizing that occurs. You know, it shouldn't be like that. You know, if somebody broke their arm, oh, let's go help them. Hmm. If they're mentally unwell, we, we don't tend to rush to it. So, you know, the question is, is the mining industry ready for it? I actually believe it is. There's some, and I think some of the unions uh, across the world have led a really good um, uh, cause on this one about getting it up into management's uh, radar. And, and I would say that's one of the powerful things I got from the local 6500 at Valley in Sudbury was their tremendous care around mental wellness. And so, you know, did the whole workforce line up behind the union on that one? Maybe not, but there was enough of them that it became a big enough deal. Valley did a very, very good study on that, great data out of it. So I think it's getting there. And I think with good management gaining traction and partnering up with people like uh, that, that uh, union partnership, and, and you don't have to be unionized, but I, I just do like the work that was done there. But, but partnering up with workforces and promoting, once again, back at the design phase, Rob, yeah. if I'm going to hire people into a mine, who am I hiring? What type of supervisors am I hiring? And if I'm hiring a supervisor, not just because they're good miners, but because they care about people and want them to be mentally well for their families, then it's going to encourage the conversation from the workers come out, yeah, I've managed my finances too well, I'm starting to get stressed, or you know, my girlfriend's run away, or you know, my child died, or you know, whatever, whatever the things are that spark those mental mm. pieces that can cause the, the, the spiral down. Um, I, I think, yes, we can, and it's going to take just strong leadership from the part of the, the management crew, along with really good routines in place from a management system. So we can get it. I'm determined that the t we have enough tools to get ahead of this one. But a bit like when AIDS first came, I don't think we know all the answers to the cures, but I think we can get better at noticing earlier and by design uh, preventing some of it from occurring uh, in the first place, just through having a better workplace where at least the, the, the mental stress of a workplace isn't the trigger. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I think mental awareness is improving. Obviously, the mining industry tends to be always be behind the eight ball and slow to react compared to other industries. But I think it is it is thinking about it. It may not necessarily be taking the right actions and and working on that. But I think I think if people speak out about it a lot more. Um, and obviously some of the things that you're doing is, is making people aware of mental illness. And, and I, I don't know, do some people sometimes not know exactly that they, they have a mental illness because mining is sort of, you work long hours, especially say for instance, you're working on site, you're doing long hours, you go to sleep, get up, work, sleep, work, have a few hours in between. Um, it's, and it becomes a normality, um, but slowly you could be deteriorating in whatever, in whatever sense you might have a mental illness. Um, so I think again, it, I suppose it's companies just seeing those signs and managers seeing those signs. So again, I suppose it's around education and maybe testing, regular testing, um, which could be just general health checks, um, that can test 
I suppose not test for it, but if someone if someone is um, showing some sort of signs, if there's regular testing, then they can catch something a little bit earlier, or not even catch it, but then just deal with it to improve to improve that person. No, you're absolutely right. And as I said, we do know a lot. We don't. I don't think we know everything we need to know, but we do know a lot that we didn't. And what I liked about um, a number of the studies that you can look at now is it's very, very clear that a common factor amongst the initial cause of a depression or an anxiety state is actually lack of or poor quality sleep. And, and so when you look at, um, and there's data that will show you, when you look at, uh, you know, because mining is such a capital intensive um, business, if we don't work our assets on a 24-7 basis, none of them ever make investment grade, you know, which, unless you've got one of those really, really rich deposits where you can work day shifts only and shut it all down. But by and large, you know, once you put all that billions of dollars into the ground and into your plants, they need to work 24-7 to get the payback. And so therefore, you've got shift rosters for people to work rotating shifts. Well, we've got data that shows there are certain shifts that lead to worse sleep patterns. And so we're using that data and we're working with potential contractors that will provide a workforce to say, by the way, this particular shift roster is the best for sleep. So unless you're willing to work on this shift roster, don't bother coming in to give us a bid to be our mining contractor. And then mm. we, we also know other things that start to affect sleep quality is, did I have a roommate? What's the noise in the room next door? Uh, what's If I'm sleeping on days because I work at nights, what's the light quality in my room? And then the other factor that's fascinating to me is that as you, as you do rotating shifts, we, we now know that your, your body clock about how I, which when I like to sleep and that moves at a certain rate so many hours per day, but your stomach clock for your meals moves at a different rate. <laughs> so, yeah. So now that we know that, it's like, okay, so if I'm changing people from day shift to night shift, how do I help them in their dietary side as well? Because a lot of people end up on this um, um, pattern on night shift of snacking on really unhealthy foods, and now they end up going towards a potential obesity issue, which, of course, has got all its other health issues. So. Yep. What's our role in one, helping the right shift roster for the sleep pieces, but then also helping them on the health side of their eating. And so we're doing all a lot, well, we're doing a lot of that stuff by design right up front. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we think, you know, as you said, if we can put, there's this other factor we're working with the psychiatrist right now is what would some indicators be that the workforce could give us without having to fill in a questionnaire or you know, whatever? Because a lot of people after a while, don't even bother to answer them anymore because it's too routine. They just check boxes and move on. But is there a way that we can pick up from the workforce that, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're getting a bit stressed or, we're, no, we've moved from a, a, a moderately happy to a moderately depressed workforce. What are those indicators? How do, you, how do we get them automatically such yeah, that yeah. we can intervene very early on uh, to, to support the, the mental wellness of our people? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've answered uh, my next question, but um, what I mean, what design features in a mind could be altered uh, to fundamentally improve the self, the safety and, um, and health performance of the industry? 
And obviously, you've touched on a few things around rosters, yeah. etc. I've, I've done some on, on, on health, but I hadn't really spoken much on safety, which is where my passion originally started, so I'm on safety, but it's just grown to include health. I mean, I didn't even recognize health as a separate issue before, but uh, on the safety side, I, I think one of the things that bothers me personally as a leader in the industry is that if, if you look at our performance, statistically, we have fewer accidents than we ever had before. And, and it looks pretty good at a broad level. But if you look at the rate at which people are killed during mining operations, that rate has hardly changed. Now, it's not a massive rate like it was. If you drop back 40, 50 years, I don't care where you were in the world, mining's this rough game, people die, blah, blah, blah. But uh, that's, that started to change, and we got much better. And fatalities in, in you know, I'd say the mining industry now is one of the safest industries out there. Now, do we have outliers in certain countries? Possibly, yes. Well, not possibly, yes, we do. But overall, the safety of the mining industry has improved dramatically. The worrying feature for me is the fact that we still occasionally have people die on the job. And it's been like that for maybe 20 years now. Even while we've continuously improved the lost time injury rate or even you know, a, a, a recordable injury rate. Um, it's so, so the concern for me then is what are we going to do to prevent those occasional fatalities? Because they're, they're such a shock for everybody. I mean, talk about a mental wellness issue. When my friend next door just got killed, literally got killed, and I'm by him here, I can't tell you how hard it is dealing with that person for the longest time. I know one that never recovered, never was able to go back to work. And so um, what we have to do, I believe, in this industry, and, and you know, I remember working with Rikus Hrimbik uh, with Trevally right now, who's got a very similar philosophy in this particular one that I do, which is if you can design your processes from the bottom up, with safety in mind, what would you end up with? And, and so what we're doing at Rockcliffe is we're looking at, you know, there's, there's 10 very common killers underground. Uh, you can, a piece of rock falls on you, you blow yourself up with explosives, you get run over by a piece of equipment, uh, you fall down an open hole. You know, there's some very, very common ways that you can die in an underground mine. There's a hazards there. What, what is interesting is some of those hazards are placed there by design. Mm. Think about it. We put the hole in the ground. Why? Because that's we've got to go get there. But then I look at it, but is every hole necessary? And, and which of the vertical holes that we actually don't need? And is it possible wherever there's a vertical hole, as opposed to the ramp that goes underground that I'm walking down, so if I fall, I pick myself up, right? Um, is it, can I design out any vertical hole? And if I can't, why does a person ever need to be at the vertical hole? Can I design the use of that vertical hole that people just aren't there? So by design, can I remove the possibility of someone in a 20-year mine life falling down an open hole? Yeah. And I think by asking some of those questions around the 10 common killers, we can start to eliminate certain fatalities from our future. And what that starts to do, and, and you know, some of the Rockcliffe designs 
uh, I believe we've done that. I believe we do not need ventilation raises anymore. We don't need ore passes and we don't need waste passes. So if we don't need any raises in the mine, the only vertical uh, hole that sh should be in our mine, and we haven't finished the design, so I'm, I've got the luxury of speaking from paper, not from reality. <laughs> um, but it's a very clear intent of ours that the only vertical hole in our mines is going to be these narrow veins, steeply dipping ore bodies. And we have stated right up front that there will be no people required at those holes at all. And it took us a while to get there, but we now have that design in place. So when you now don't need anybody at the hole, and we don't have all those other holes because they, they've literally disappeared by design, we believe that you know, falling down uh, a raise or a stope or whatever is eliminated from the, our future. So I, I think by taking a stand at the design phase, yes, we can continue to improve the safety of that low frequency event or that highly traumatic event of a fatality. Um, we, we also are taking a, a stand on there'll be no diesel equipment in our mine. And so there's a number of things that become issues initially, but we now think of tremendous advantages as a result of that. But the one that drove us initially is that we didn't want diesel fumes underground because even with the tier four engines that have got pretty good um, catalytic converters at the back end and can, are able to reduce certain particulates that we know can cause cancer from the, the air so the miners don't have to, to breathe them anymore, um, NOx was an issue. And yep. then the, the submicron particles became an issue. And, and, and we just think there's too many unknowns around combustion gases for us to have to want to people to breathe them. So if we went 100% electric or battery electric, that's eliminated too. And we now have a design in place. And the way we've overcome the issue that, you know, the, one of the bigger issues, well, how, if you're not going to truck, how do you get your stuff up? Because you, if you don't have a shaft, because our minds are relatively shallow, we don't anticipate needing a shaft, so we'll ramp. You know, how do you get your volume up there quickly? And you know, there's a couple of different methodologies, and the one we've focused in on that's the heart of our design work now is rail there. Uh, it's electric drive stations, and it, it'll move more muck than we can ever actually generate. Okay. They're, they're, they're so easy to upsize with the existing fleet of a thing. You just yeah. put another train on and another train on. So we're very, very excited by that. And, and the beautiful part about this, when you jump back to the environmental side of this, Rob, is that you know we're going to be in northern Manitoba. There's a lot of snow on the ground for a lot of the year. And it's very, very cold. You know, minus 40 is not an unusual long spell for days on end of minus 40 centigrade. And so if you're pumping air underground, you can't pump it underground at minus 40. <laughs> Freeze your miners, right? Yeah. So um, by not having to ventilate for all that diesel fume from the mobile fleet, the amount of air that goes underground drops very, very dramatically. And therefore, the amount of heat that we have to put in there drops dramatically. So, you know, and, and up there, we would have to burn, you know, I don't know, LNG, propane. You know, we haven't figured it out yet, but we're looking at different um, forms of fuel to burn to create that heat for us. Um, 
we'll just need so much less of it so that our you know, environmental footprint from greenhouse gases is going to plummet as a result of choosing let's go uh, electric underground so that we don't have diesel fuel. So we're yeah. finding ways to come back at this and we're doing lots of other stuff around capital that says, yeah, you may have a little bit more capital up front, but given we've got short mine life, all that equipment goes to the next place, goes to the next place, goes to the next place. So the next mine doesn't have the capital cost except for the hole. And so we can use, reuse that capital very usefully over the, over the next mine lives and actually reduce capital costs of the next mines. And so that there's a capital answer as well that's available to us uh, as a result of this. Yeah. I mean, obviously, given uh, the mining industry's need for sort of large amounts of capital, um, that's requiring obviously bigger, larger balance and, uh, balance sheets. Um, could a mining company be designed to be both agile and large in size? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a conundrum. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, one of Rockcliffe's um, design principles for the company is agile. So we designed yeah. our office space. And if people want to do, you can help on YouTube or our, our website, and you'll have a look at a quick video uh, of, of our office space. Yeah, we can put that um, in the show notes. Yeah, we, we um, designed it to be agile, innovative, and high-performance teamwork driven. So w what's interesting to me is when I've tried to be agile inside of large companies, which is where most of my work in life has been, there's normally a norm or a policy, or something or other that says, here's how you stop rogues from upsetting the system, here's how we can pass audits, here's how we, you know, it's all good governance stuff. But it doesn't promote agility. So could a large mining company, which has the benefit of a huge balance sheet that says I can go put a billion dollars into a hole in the ground, be agile? I would say I haven't seen it yet. Now, is it possible? Yeah. yeah, but when society currently treats us the way it does, with largely mistrust, because, you know, when will the next Mount Polly occur? Or, you know, the tailings dams, you know, it's a major issue for us now in mining. And we've got to do a lot yet to build trust. We're going to have pretty strict controls inside the major companies that says, that stuff ain't going to happen on my watch. Yeah. And I think every time we do that, we don't, we don't become agile. So what Rockcliffe's trying to do is maybe operate in a completely different spectrum. How do we not need such a big balance sheet? So could we operate in a very different niche that says we don't build billion-dollar mines. We build lots of $50 million mines rapidly in succession, and the next one's a little cheaper. And so maybe our balance sheet doesn't need to be the size of where the industry has been driven currently. So how do I put the next porphyry on in Arizona as well? Get your checkbook out, start with the billions. Uh, you know, Rockcliffe just doesn't even get a chance to compete in that game. Yeah. Um, but what, what if we found this niche that says we can be agile, which allows for the innovation, which means the next minority is a different design because of what we learned here. No, we don't need to be secure, reduce risk, and repeat this one design to the next and take all the mistakes. Why? Because we know how to fix them and you know, risk is down. But it's got all the mistakes in and everybody hates, cause frustration, mental unwellness. But this is, 
there's a cyclical problem potentially here, but you know, what Rockcliffe is trying to create is, is in, in its drive around nobility is quite a different model, a niche model. We, we don't anticipate that we'll ever be, as a company, a major player. Yeah. But what we do believe we could do is cause an industry culture to grow where small is liked, small is welcomed, and small can then be a number of small companies so that you don't have to be big, that actually grow in number. So if we can pioneer the way that says, here's how these deposits that have been known about some of them for 60 or 70 years on our plate, never been able to be mined profitably by the big companies, be mined by a small company profitably. And if we pave the way, where are all those other narrow veins steeply dipping ore deposits as a primary focus first, but we just mean generally small deposit that can need you know, potentially other things. Um, other money methods is that you know, here's how you get a small player in the game, no big balance sheet required, very agile. So we, I don't know the answer. I don't think I'm young enough to go play the game. Can I make you know, one of the majors truly agile? Um, but I'm going to play the game in this different little arena with, with Rockcliffe and yeah. see if we can't grow its importance to society where there's, there is an agile piece. And then maybe at some point when we're, we're a big enough force, you know, could be maybe we grow, you know, even in the copper world, maybe we grow to 10 or 15% as a type of source. So Rockcliffe would be a percentage, very small percentage of that. But could there be enough of these small deposits around the world that 10% of the world's copper, 15, whatever the number is, actually gets thrown into the pool for society? Uh, and there's enough innovation occurring on there where people can go and say, Ah, oh, look, it does work. There it is. And then a major might be able to do it on a big deposit. So maybe that's the way we can have a little bit of synergy uh, yeah. between them and us. Yeah. Um, I've got a couple, two more questions. Um, how have sort of these principles helped in how you've de sort of designed uh, Rockcliffe as a company um, and it's uh, res um, the sort of future of mind design? So how, how these principles helped, helped you? Uh, obviously, you, you've you've had this vision and mission, um, and sort of how 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 has that your vision? How has that helped you design sort of uh, Rockcliffe? Yeah, it's what's useful about it. If if you know if you know where you're going, I might not know how to get there. Yeah, right. But if I know where I'm going, and I and I know what's available today doesn't get me there. It's interesting, right at the very first phase of hiring the team around me, I was able to ask questions about each of the individuals, about how they liked to work. Yeah. And so we were able to, right at the very beginning, select people who are up for the game of, yeah, you're right, we don't know how to do that, but count me in anyway. So now, you know, there's five of us here that share that philosophy. So. What it means is today's solution that we're working on, we're fully expecting it by tomorrow to find out it actually doesn't work. Yeah. I suppose you've got to have an open mind as well, um, an open mind to try things and not just work in the way that you've done previously um, and just be very open-minded and flexible. Yeah, very good, Rob. And then, so the other thing is, so yes, and 
<laughs> along with that, when we first came up with our concept, uh, and we, I mean, we talked to lots and lots of people. You know, what we're coming up with isn't Rockcliffe's idea. It's going to show up first in a Rockcliffe mine if we're successful. But we talked to anybody that would like open their door to us uh, or their lift their phone to us, um, and bit by bit we piece together a high-level concept that says, ah, if all of this stuff, this uh, set of processes for an underground mine on that type of body, if they work, our gut feel around productivities, capital costs, operating costs, even in northern Manitoba, that's, that's got some economic potential. Right? Just our experience would say it landed in a ballpark that now got interesting for us versus just apply what you know today and we know it, don't, it doesn't work financially. Um, when we were happy with that, we actually called 20 people, 20 people volunteered to give up their time. We sat them down in a room, we borrowed, because Rock was very small, we borrowed somebody's boardroom, they were very kind to us. We all sat around this big boardroom and they gave us nearly six hours of their day. And the opening statement I gave us, so I've got my small team here, um, what we want to show is the principle that says we believe you can mine a minimum 2,000 tons a day out of a narrow vein, steeply dipping ore body. And everybody laughed. Because if you go and apply what we know in our industry as Taylor's Law, you will get various answers depending on various factors, but the range will be sort of 500 to 1,000 tons a day. And 1,000 is kind of like out there. Uh, 800 would be a good number, and 500, yeah, we will do that. So when we said 2,000 tons a day, most people in the room just said, I don't know what you're smoking, but it must be the good <laughs> stuff. It's legal <laughs> in Canada now. Yeah. Sharing, you know? <laughs> um, but at the end of six hours, there wasn't a person in that room that didn't believe that 2,000 tons a day was possible. And so I think the other thing that's necessary for us in here is the ability to enroll others in our vision. Mm. And, and we're learning to get better and better in that. We kind of forget it sometimes and we get issues where people say, no, 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 we just can't do that because it's never been done before. And we say, wait, nothing is in this mind that's ever been done before this way. So you, know, you can't block me here. And, and then we've got to go back and redo it. But we're getting better and better at rolling people in the vision. And, um, you know, I, I don't remember the exact question you had there, but I, I, I think enrollment is a, is a key requirement for us to get there. And I think the last place you're going to see us having to enroll people is when we go to the financial markets to raise the money uh, to build the mine. Yes. And selling, that, and, and selling that concept that it's different um, and achievable based on, obviously, the research that you've done. Um, it's, yeah, it's just convincing people of a new way of a new way of mining um yeah. so yeah it might be a bit of a might be a bit of a hit but it's a it's a risk and reward so you might take that little bit more risk on but the reward would be more superior yeah and and everything will be engineered it won't just be i hope it works yeah no there's an it's an engineered solution just never engineered quite that way before, before. yeah um and last question, what does mining mean to you? Mining? <laughs> well, I don't know if you've heard of my voice, but 
it, it brings to me passion. Yeah. So, you know, uh, that it's given to me and my family. You know, we've moved around six different countries. It's a bit of a curse, too, because now my kids have gone off to different countries. So <laughs> it's harder to see them. But, but by, boy, it's an interesting question. I, I don't know that I've ever put my mind to it before, but for me, it means possibility potentially at the bottom line. Um, the, the ability for us to survive on this earth is a growing number of people, unless the next virus really does a number on us, mm. is going to be provided by two key resource industries, agriculture and mining. And, and our ability to mine the appropriate uh, minerals that allow society to live so densely on this earth is, is huge. And so therefore I would say, you know, maybe the bottom line of what does mining mean to be the possibility of humanity. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Uh, Alistair, really appreciate your time out and taking the time to do this podcast. I mean, I've, I've, I've certainly le learned a lot. Open, it's opened up my mind um, in a few different areas and I'm sure the audience will look at, look at their work and the way they do their work and, and maybe think about just redesigning a few, uh, a few things that they do in their day-to-day -day life. So um, I think people listening can, can look at that and make some necessary changes to, I suppose, just improve their day-to-day improve their -day and mining lives. So I really appreciate you uh, providing the, this uh, content. Um, if anyone wants to reach out to you, um, how can they go about doing that? And are you on any so uh, social media platforms? Yeah, sure. Uh, you can see Alistair Ross on LinkedIn. It's the one I most typically use. I don't use others. Um, but rockcliffmetals.com is, is the website. And certainly all my contacts and the corporate contacts are at the website. So that's probably the easiest too, LinkedIn and rockcliffmetals.com. Yeah, certainly. And we'll put those in the show notes as well. Um, this also will be going out on our YouTube channel as well. So again, I'll put all those details on there as well. Um, yeah, so really appreciate your time, Alistair. Um, hope the audience has enjoyed it. I certainly have. Um, and until next time, happy mining. Yeah, thanks a lot, Rob. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.